Hello and welcome to Episode 6 of The Beethoven Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about the cello sonatas from Opus 5 and the string trios from Opus 9. In February 1796, Beethoven set out for Prague, traveling with Prince Lishnovsky, who had made the same trip with Mozart seven years earlier. During his stay in Prague, he composed a concert aria for soprano and orchestra, the Wind Sextet Opus 71, which we'll talk about in a later episode, and one of his easy piano sonatas, Opus 49, Number 2. He also gave at least one concert in Prague before moving on to Dresden and Leipzig, and finally Berlin in a concert tour that stretched on four times longer than he had originally planned. In Dresden, he played for, and greatly impressed, the Elector of Saxony. Arriving in Berlin in May and staying until July, Beethoven made a number of important contacts, not the least of which were two famous cellists associated with the sophisticated musical court of Friedrich Wilhelm II, Duke of Saxe-Altenburg, who was an amateur cellist of some ability, and who surrounded himself with some of the great cello virtuosi of the period, most notably Jean-Pierre Duport and his brother Jean-Louis Duport. The two made quite an impression on Beethoven, their unique abilities on the instrument opening his consciousness to a myriad of new expressive possibilities for the cello, possibilities which he was determined to take advantage of in these two sonatas, both of which were probably composed while he was residing in Berlin. Both are very worthy of examination, but we're going to focus on the first in F major. The slow introduction in 3-4 time, 34 measures in length and marked adagio sostenuto, is very formal in nature. The theme is stately and dignified for the first several measures. The melodic movement merely outlines the tonic triad for the first three measures, first in a short, four-note motive employing dotted eighths and sixteenths, and then in an arpeggio up and more slowly down the chord, with the cello doubling the left hand of the piano. The next three bars repeat the first three up a step, but by measure six, the cello has assumed a semblance of independence, and from that point on alternates with the piano in presenting important thematic material. The cello's first sustained melodic idea, which begins in measure six, is, after an opening swirl of sixteenth notes, a relatively slow-moving, descending melodic phrase, presented initially in quarter notes against simple piano accompaniment, although it concludes with a decorative surge in rhythmic activity. An unexpected chromatic variant of the cello's four-bar phrase is then taken up by the piano in block chords, which moves the key toward F minor. Let's hear that much. Thank you. 
Several other ideas are glimpsed as we proceed through the introduction, some based loosely on the dotted rhythm figure heard in the first measure, others based on rapid 30-second note descending scale fragments treated sequentially, and chromatic passages doubled in thirds by the piano. The piano dominates the activity for the most part, with more sustained but less conspicuous contributions from the cellist. Eventually, we encounter a cadenza-like passage in the piano, reinforced by sustained multiple stops in the cello, along with slow-moving dotted rhythm motives. After a flurry of pianistic activity, the final measures of the introduction assume a more sedate posture before it comes to a close on the dominant seventh chord to prepare for the allegro section. Here we switch to common time and begin with a simple but catchy theme, starting with an embellished half note on the fifth scale degree and then moving down an octave, first via a descending scale line and then the drop of a fourth down to the lower C, which is itself embellished. The second part of the phrase introduces a new motive, one that cheerfully arpeggiates up the F major tonic chord, arriving at its goal of B flat before descending down the dominant seventh sonority. I'll play it in just a minute. Simple though this first melodic idea is, it bustles with rhythmic energy, in part because of the cello accompaniment consisting of repeated eighth note double stops. Here are the opening measures of the Allegro section. As you heard in my example, the initial four-bar phrase gives way to a second phrase that begins in a similar way, but then heads off on its own, moving briefly toward D minor while introducing new motivic ideas featuring conspicuous octave leaps followed by descending scale lines in sixteenth notes, an idea that repeats sequentially up a fourth to direct us back toward F major. After a linking phrase, the melody is then handed to the cello, which, again as you heard, provides a shorter, somewhat varied version of the theme. At that point, we head for the modulatory transition, which we assume will deliver us to C major, the key of the dominant. It's an unremarkable transition section for the most part. The piano dominates with some fairly generic triadic arpeggios, but the cello makes some strong contributions as well, especially right before we arrive at the second subject. When we arrive at the second subject, one replete with dotted note rhythms and some mild syncopations, the cello takes the lead, but it is not, at least not right away, in the expected key of C major. In fact, it begins on an A-flat chord. This wouldn't surprise us if we were expecting the key of C minor, but since we're not, it is at least a mild surprise. Here's the last part of the modulatory transition and the second subject.
The surprising effect, such as it is, doesn't last very long, as you could hear. A nifty descending chromatic bass line pulls us back quickly from A-flat to C major. But we don't stay very long in C major either, as a variant of the first phrase is heard pulling us toward D minor, where the initial bars of the second subject are repeated. But then a contrasting phrase in the cello, featuring some distinctive staccato articulation markings and nice weak beat sforzandos, doubled in tenths by the piano right hand, point us back to C major. All of this happens very quickly, in the course of just 12 measures, and we really don't have time to absorb any of these clever maneuvers as actual key changes, but we do hear changes in harmonic color. The second subject then repeats, starting again on A-flat, the piano taking the cello's part in the higher octave. This is followed by a new passage, built primarily on rapidly descending scales alternating between piano and cello, which appears to be on the verge of returning us to the normal second subject key of C major, only to veer one last time toward A-flat. But as before, it's just a brief side trip, and a new passage of swirling sixteenths in the piano and offbeat syncopations in the cello, which you heard at the end of my example, send us securely to C major and toward the closing section. Before we get there, there's an interesting passage in the piano alone made up of staccato eighth note chords in a series of sequentially ascending rapid tonicizations, where Beethoven hints at a series of different keys, but in the end finishes off right where he started, in C major. Here is that passage going into a more conventional closing section, featuring a new, more broadly conceived theme from the cello, which is then repeated in ornamented and varied form by the piano. After the closing theme proper, we hear a series of rapid-scale passages from the piano, including a particularly dynamic ascending chromatic scale against sustained double stops in the cello, a little of which you heard at the end of my excerpt. This leads to a dramatic passage laden with sforzando accents from both piano and cello until we're finally introduced to a more delicate codetta theme. Thank you. 
As is so often the case, the Codetta theme is brief and is followed by a more rhythmically dynamic passage, which, as you heard, veers off in the second ending to A major, the surprising new key in which the development section begins. And it begins by quoting the first four bars of the first subject in A major, but it is a variant of the first two bars of that theme, sometimes a minor key variant, that will attract the most attention as the development section proceeds. The pianist is very busy here, quoting the main melodic motives and accompanying them with Alberti bass patterns and broken third patterns of various types. But the cellist also gets into the act, especially with the minor key version of the opening phrase of the first subject, often focusing on the second measure motive, which it isolates, often quite low in the cello's range. We modulate around somewhat, of course, first to D minor and later to G minor, but there are no real surprises until fairly late in the development section where we encounter a new thematic idea very quietly in the piano. It's rather slow-moving, equal parts graceful and noble, unfolding initially in a series of half-note chords in the piano right hand against the octave-leaping sixteenth notes in the left hand and sustained notes in the cello. Eventually, these leaping sixteenth notes begin to ascend chromatically by step, which they do for some time, against lyrical phrases from the cello that recall the closing section theme. Gradually, the chromatically ascending line in the piano pulls us back in the direction of the original tonic of F major for the recapitulation. Here's the passage from the development section in question, starting in F minor and featuring the cellist's repeated echoes of the half-step motive from the second bar of the first section, employing the lowest note on the instrument and often sounding rather ominous. This leads to the new thematic idea I just referred to, which enters in D-flat major and then eventually, and very quietly, to the recapitulation, the first subject returning in the original tonic key of F major. The recapitulation proceeds more or less as we would expect for the most part, but there are some interesting surprises worth mentioning. First, when we come to the recapitulation of the modulatory transition section, we now hear a variant of the new theme first heard in the development section. It's unusual enough for Beethoven to introduce a new theme into the development section in what is otherwise a conventional sonata form movement, but for the return of that theme, to play such a major role in the recapitulation is doubly unusual. 
Also, after the original codetta is varied and extended somewhat upon its reappearance, now in F major, we encounter a coda, which turns out to be a complex, multi-section affair. After motives from the first subject echo back and forth between piano and cello, we experience an unexpected shift in tempo to an adagio section of only six measures, which harkens back to the movement's slow introduction without actually quoting it. Then we encounter a presto section in which a fully notated but very cadenza-like passage in the piano is heard, later joined by the cello. Then, as if Beethoven needed to pull us back to the main essence of the movement before closing it out, there is a final section, a return to tempo one, that consists of a final quote of the first two bars of the opening subject, followed by a scamper to the final cadence of the movement. It would be hard to argue that this is a groundbreaking movement, but it does have a lot of distinctive features and certainly exploits the possibilities of the cello to a far greater extent than any of Beethoven's previous works. We're going to move on now to the final movement, a rondo in F major, 6-8 meter, and marked Allegro Vivace. This rondo is one of Beethoven's most effective to date, not necessarily because the refrain theme is so remarkable by itself, but because of the beguiling way in which the whole movement unfolds. The movement begins with a simple but frisky theme in the cello, its opening motive echo quickly by the piano. The next four bars provide a varied repeat of the first four, with the piano taking the lead and the cello providing an echo. There's a little two-bar tag at the end, which is to take on a life of its own later in the movement. Here's the entire refrain theme and the transition to the first episode. As you heard, the transition introduces a new two-bar motive in the cello, but it's the flurry of sixteenth notes, mostly arpeggio-based, first in the piano and later in the cello, that really catches the ear. These naturally require skill on the pianist's part, but they are particularly demanding for the cellist, and it's unlikely that Beethoven would have written such a part for the cello before being influenced by his contact with the virtuoso cellists I mentioned earlier. The first episode is relatively sedate, marked piano but with some offbeats forzano accents, heard first in the cello, which provides a varied repeat of the initial piano motive. Although the rhythmic activity has slowed to a series of eighth notes, the harmonic rhythm is actually fairly quick, with a series of tonicizations packed into a relatively short space. The second part of the episode focuses on sequential development of motives from the first bar, heard first in the piano and then cello.
my excerpt carried us into the re-transition, the passage that takes us to a repeat of the refrain. It's not a particularly remarkable one, more 16th note arpeggio patterns of the sort we heard in the original transition, with the cellist joining in briefly as well. In the end, it turns into something very much like an extended ornamented trill by the pianist, which leads us quietly into the return of the refrain theme. By the way, that little glimmer of the refrain theme you heard in the piano right at the end of my excerpt wasn't actually the real return of the refrain. It was, rather, something of a false, premature return, not in the key of F major, the original tonic, as one would expect, but in A flat major. This sort of false return was not Beethoven's invention, but he uses it very effectively here. When the real refrain returns, the melody is in the cello, now echoed by the piano, and it holds a surprise. After cello and piano have presented the refrain theme, we then hear a minor key variant of it, which serves as the transition to the next episode. Here is the second refrain, with a lead-in from the false return in the piano, and extending into the increasingly powerful transition featuring offbeat accents. The transition you just heard doesn't stay in F minor. In fact, its main harmonic function is to set up a modulation to B flat minor, because that's the key, a bit unusual actually, where the second episode starts, the C episode, in what is so far an A-B-A-C form. It's a particularly clever episode, a rakish little gypsy-influenced dance, complete with accompanying cello pizzicatos. That's just the first part of the episode. The second part begins in D-flat major, the relative major of B-flat minor, but later moves sequentially toward E-flat minor, and then again later back to B-flat minor. Like the first part of the episode, it employs repeated dotted 8th 16th rhythmic motives, and also like the first, repeats those motives liberally, but it is a bit more expansive in some of its melodic gestures. Here's an excerpt showing this second part, the theme rendered first by piano and then in a variant by the cello, flowing into the retransition, which is made up initially of gentle piano arpeggios against cello double stops, initially in G-flat major, later in D-flat major. Eventually, the texture reduces to piano alone, and we hear what amounts to another written-out trilling passage from the piano, which leads us quietly to the return of the refrain.
As you heard near the end of my excerpt, the refrain recurs in a somewhat new form, with a more driving 16th note accompaniment, first in the piano and then in the cello. Following this varied restatement of the refrain, we pass into a transition that acts almost like a development section, combining some older motivic ideas with pumping 16th note octaves in the piano accompaniment. Then the first episode reappears in varied form, we'll call it B prime this time, and passes to another retransition. It's similar to the first, but more tonally active and never reports back to the original refrain theme, instead passing to a passage which resembles the retransition from the middle or C episode. This also contains some new features, most notably a somewhat mysterious development of a three-note fragment based on an inversion of the motive that began the refrain. The actual refrain does eventually materialize again, rather quietly at pianissimo, harmonized by the piano left hand against a sustained trill in the right hand. Soon piano, both hands, and cello break into rapid arpeggios and octave jumps as the dynamic level increases to fortissimo. At that point, we seem to have passed into a coda, where we hear fragments from the refrain theme and transition sections, often delivered with sforzando accents and pumping octaves in the piano left hand. The dynamic level doesn't remain consistently high. We occasionally drop down to piano, only to crescendo back to forte. But all of this activity seems to suggest that we're driving nonstop to the end of the movement. But that's not what happens. The tempo slows briefly, and fragments of the refrain melody are heard in block chords. We encounter a fermata, a brief reduction in tempo to adagio, and another fermata, the sort of tempo manipulation that reminds us of the first movement. And then suddenly, back to tempo prima, and a race to the finish with repeated fragments derived from the opening of the refrain theme played in the cello's upper range. Here is the conclusion of the movement, starting from the last appearance of the refrain theme against the sustained trill in the piano.
There's no question that Beethoven's cello sonata in F major is a new type of cello sonata. The cello almost completely succeeds in divorcing its activities from those of the piano's left hand and has repeatedly provided with important thematic material not doubled by the piano, although sometimes shared with it. Furthermore, the material provided to the cello is often completely idiomatic to that instrument and seldom a mere replication or even adaptation of the sort of figuration patterns usually assigned to the piano. To the contrary, the cello often exploits important thematic material on its own terms and in a style far more suitable to it than to the piano. We're going to turn now to the string trios, a genre which was, by the late 18th century, not always taken seriously as a vehicle for a composer's most serious thoughts, compared, for example, to the more prestigious string quartet. Although Mozart and Haydn had both contributed to the genre, string trios were fading in popularity by the 1790s, and Beethoven never composed another one after beginning to work on his string quartets. The Opus 9 trios were not Beethoven's first published trios. His Opus 3 string trio, in E-flat major in six movements, two of the minuets, has been compared to Mozart's Divertimento in E-flat major, Kirchhoff 563, in the type, pacing, and general style of the movements. Although there are certainly some quite serious movements in the E-flat trio, it also features a number of lighter, serenade-type movements as well. The next work written for the string trio configuration is actually labeled as a serenade, the Serenade in D major for violin, viola, and cello, Opus 8. There are certainly some lovely movements, especially the second movement, Adagio, and movement 5, the Allegretto alla Polacca, is certainly a colorful one. But we're going to devote the remainder of this episode to a look at the string trio in G major, Opus 9, number 1. Beethoven is known to have thought very highly of the Opus 9 string trios, published in 1798, and he dedicated them to a favorite patron, a Russian general then living in Vienna. These string trios have also been seen by historians as generally more substantive works than his early efforts in the genre. The thematic material is, generally speaking, more complex, and the development sections within the sonata form movements more elaborate. The independence between the parts for these new trios and the overall virtuosity of each part has also been the subject of commentary. As Watson points out, these were the first trios to be debuted by professional chamber musicians, a trio led by Beethoven's good friend Ignaz Schuppanzeich. The first movement of the trio begins with a slow, stately, fortissimo introduction marked adagio, its opening measures descending a G major triad beginning on the third of the chord. After a 16th note passage that gradually works its way down to the lower tonic with a decrescendo, the mood changes somewhat, with a series of almost coquettish staccato passages based on 16th notes in the violin, answered by three-note arpeggio motives in viola and cello. The introduction takes on a little more serious tone a few measures later, when a sequentially repeated passage tonicizes A minor and threatens to tonicize E minor. But the last maneuver is just a feint and following this, the coquettish mood is re-established until the end of the introduction, which concludes with a sustained dominant chord and a flippant little scale line that pauses on a D-sharp. Here is the entire Adagio introduction.
When the first subject, part one, arrives, it too hovers around the dominant for several measures in the form of an ornamented arpeggiation of the chord. Even when the tonic is finally reached, the first part of the first subject still seems strangely hesitant and even disjointed, alternating G major scale lines, arpeggios, and large dramatic leaps of two octaves or more. This part of the first subject extends for 11 measures, eventually giving way to a new and more seemingly coherent melodic idea, heard first in the cello and then violin. This new idea, the second part of the first subject, is quite distinctive, most notably because of its characteristic rhythm and trill on the third beat of the second measure. The four-bar phrase is handed next to the violin, at which point the cello assumes an accompaniment pattern of staccato quarter-note arpeggios that links it to bar five of the subject. The first subject, both parts, is followed by a neat little modulatory transition that introduces yet another new rhythmic idea. Here's the beginning of that transition. This transition begins to undermine the original tonic key after four measures, but it takes a full 14 bars before coming to a cadence in the new key for the second subject. And that new key is not quite what we expected it would be. The second subject opens in the minor dominant and is again notable for its distinctive rhythmic identity and block chord texture, as well as its constant staccato articulations. After its initial eight-bar presentation, the melody shifts to the viola, with the cello playing mostly in thirds below it, and the violin providing a decorative counter-melody, mostly chordal arpeggios, connected here and there by lower neighbor figures. The tune fades quietly to pianissimo, and the closing section is introduced. This consists initially of a two-bar phrase, heard first in the violin, and then duplicated in turn, each time an octave lower, by the viola and cello. You heard a little of it in my last excerpt. After another new passage, which consists of a repeated melodic motive in the violin against changing chords in the piano, we're introduced to a fairly mundane codetta that hurries us to the end of the exposition with bustling 16th note passages. The development section begins in a conventional manner, playing with the opening measures of the first subject, 
although in a key which initially appears to be G minor. A few measures later, we have moved to B flat major, and a new theme is introduced, based on an ascending octave leap, followed by a descending line of sixteenth notes. This new theme in the violin is accompanied by another highly distinctive figure in the cello, one characterized by the leap of a tritone and a chromatically raised lower neighbor tone. Both of these thematic elements play a very large part in what is probably the most interesting development section to occur in the string trios to that point. The motives are developed fluidly and cleverly throughout and with a good deal of tonal variety in the process. Here is the new theme and part of its development. After developing this new idea for a while, Beethoven brings back the second and most distinctive part of the first subject for development, one in which all three strings participate actively. The new theme I just referred to also returns, but it's the last half of the first subject that gets most attention, at one point stated in octaves by all three strings, right before a pianissimo passage of staccato scale lines tossed back and forth between the three instruments yields to the recapitulation. I'm not going to say very much about the recapitulation. The first half of the first subject does return in altered form, but the second half does not, at least not initially. The distinctive minor key second subject now returns in the tonic minor, modulating briefly to the relative major as it did in the exposition, and the closing section and codata both appear in the original tonic of G major. There is a coda, and it does have a few tricks up its sleeve. The first subject is quoted again, but cut short and we veer toward G minor. Then, in the unlikely key of E-flat major, the second half of the second theme, which had been missing previously from the recapitulation, once again makes its appearance and dominates the action for eight measures. After another very clever chromatic modulation back to G major, the remainder of the coda satisfies itself with a series of arpeggios and scale passages, occasionally evoking the first half of the first subject, a thematic element relatively neglected up to this point. Still, considering how imaginative the development section and initial section of the coda had been, the conclusion of this movement must be heard as a little bit of a letdown. The second movement, marked Adagio ma non tanto e cantabile, E major and 3-4 meter, combines, like some of Beethoven's other slow movements, aspects of both rondo and sonata forms. We'll talk about it initially in terms of a slow movement sonata form. The opening four bars of the first theme, marked piano, flow languidly in eighth note triplets between the fifth and third of the tonic chord, with a leap of a sixth on the third beat of the first measure lending a distinctive touch. Starting with bar five, the melody is varied, still unfolding largely in triplets, but now with prominent leaps of a fifth on the second beat, while the dynamic levels swell and then retreat. By measure 9, the original melody is handed to the viola, harmonized by cello, against which the violin supplies an elegant, decorative countermelody, which is then echoed by the viola, 
and which takes us to a lovely modulatory transition characterized by some poignant dissonances. The second subject in B major is not long, but is reasonably complex, beginning pianissimo with a descending scale-wise figure, followed by a series of ascending flourishes over a simpler accompaniment provided by viola and cello. Soon the flourishes are extended to longer, undulating phrases, which take us into the next transition. You'll hear a little of that at the end of my excerpt. The passage that follows this one represents a continuation of the transition I just referred to, which touches briefly on various tonal centers along the way while developing earlier ideas, just as you might expect in the development section of a sonata form. Eventually, and at the point where we might expect a closing section, we hear a varied return of the first subject back in the original tonic of E major. That's something we clearly wouldn't expect in a conventional sonata form. But as I suggested earlier, this movement combines aspects of both sonata and rondo forms, and this is a good example of that. After a variant of the original theme recurs, and the brief transition that follows it, we hear another new melodic idea in a new key, G major actually, which could be interpreted as the middle episode of a rondo. Eventually, what I earlier labeled as the second theme also recurs, and near the end of the movement, the first theme as well. So, what term should we use to describe this slow movement? It seems to have elements of both a typical sonata form and a typical rondo form, and Beethoven wouldn't have wasted five seconds debating whether it should be described as one or the other. I'm not suggesting that this sort of ambiguity as to form is unique to Beethoven's approach, but I am suggesting that short of completely violating his audience's expectations, he was not, even at this fairly early stage in his career, afraid to mold individual movements into any shape which he felt the musical materials required. The Scherzo, G major, 3-4 meter, and marked Allegro, is a short but clever movement that toys briefly with sentimentality, but on the whole succeeds in being brisk and invigorating, 
an excellent transition between the relatively subdued slow movement and the perky finale to come. The opening period, consisting of two four-bar phrases, is quite simple, both melodically and harmonically, although a hint of wistfulness is heard almost immediately, as a supertonic seventh chord, a gently dissonant chord built on the second scale degree, is heard on the first downbeat and again in measure three. Here's the first eight-bar section ending on the dominant, without repeat. The second, longer section begins with a transposed variant of the original theme in viola and cello, sequentially repeating the first two bars to maneuver first toward A minor and then C major. Against this, the violin invents a new attractive contramelody that soon traces a strong descending chromatic line which eventually pulls us back to D major. Then, after a repeated two-bar tag based on an inversion of the opening measure, we return to a variant of the first theme that takes us to the end of the section. Here is the second section without repeat. The middle section of the movement starts in C major, but soon modulates to other closely related keys. It introduces a robust new theme in block chords. The second part thins the texture, with violin and viola exchanging expressive phrases, eventually ending on D major, the original dominant. From that point on, a varied restatement of the first section takes us to the end of the movement. The finale, G major, duple meter, and mark presto, is a spirited sonata form movement with the first subject divided into two distinct parts. The first, although quite busy, is somewhat generic in its reliance on triadic arpeggios and scale lines. The theme is thinly scored, initially only a violin-viola duet, with the cello later doubling the viola down an octave. The second part of the first subject, while short and simple, is quite a bit catchier and more distinctive. As you heard, the first four-bar phrase is played by the violin, with staccato broken chord accompaniment from the viola. The violin then repeats it an octave higher, doubled at the original octave by the viola against slightly different broken chord patterns in the cello. After a total of 16 bars, both parts of the first subject, we are launched into the modulatory transition, a bit of which you heard at the end of my excerpt. The modulatory transition concludes in the key of the dominant, D major, as we might expect. But what comes next is unexpected. The second subject appears not in D major, but for all intents and purposes, in B flat major. The harmonic rhythm slows down dramatically here, allowing the ear to luxuriate 
in this exotic new key relationship, while the melody in the violin, doubled an octave lower by the viola, unfolds in longer note values and in a long arch shape. After five bars, the F natural within the B-flat major chord is raised a half-step to F-sharp, and the key is instantly transformed to D major, the normal key for the second subject. But just two measures later, Beethoven reasserts the key of B-flat major, and the second subject melody is presented there again, although it again reverts to D major at the last second. We've seen Beethoven make use of unusual keys for the second subject before, sometimes borrowing the new key from the parallel minor mode, as he does here. In the key of G minor, B-flat major would be the obvious choice for the second subject. In the key of G major, it isn't. But of course, he does end up through something of a last-minute maneuver in the correct key of D major. Just as the second subject contrasted highly with the first in terms of overall style, so does the closing section contrast with the more broadly lyrical second subject. It's made up of a continuous flow of staccato eighth notes, first in violin and viola and later joined by cello, starting at piano but immediately crescendoing. Initially, these eighth notes follow a rather distinctive intervallic pattern, down a perfect fourth, up a step, then down a third the violin harmonized by the viola below in a repeated pattern of sixths, fifths, thirds, and fourths. It's not identical to the opening bars of the first subject, but it certainly seems inspired by them. As you heard, the cello comes in after four bars with the violin's original line played down a couple of octaves, against which the violin begins a series of octave leaps, and the viola a pattern involving broken thirds. Eventually, Beethoven introduces chromaticism, which pulls the key away from D major, at least temporarily, and the dynamics rise up to fortissimo, only to return to piano and start the process all over again but it's also continuous and repetitive in its pattern that it would be difficult to suggest that there's a real separate codetta here. It's all just one continuous flow from beginning to end. The development section, which focuses initially on the opening bars of the first subject, begins in B-flat major, but moves quickly to E-flat major and G minor. Then Beethoven takes up the second part of the first subject, first in the violin and then viola and cello. Its accompaniment is similar to what we heard in its initial appearance, but is now enriched by some sustained pedal tones against it. Everything proceeds logically, if not predictably, from this point, with Beethoven tossing around the motives from instrument to instrument and key to key, until we come to a new section marked by sforzando half-note chords and a surprising modulation to E minor. All three parts converge fortissimo on the dominant of E minor, and, for a few seconds, it appears as if the development section is reaching its triumphant climax. 
but instead the dynamic level retreats abruptly to pianissimo, and we arrive at a somewhat mysterious series of half-note chords that outline minor and diminished seventh chords and major seventh chords. This passage continues for a surprisingly long time, although the rhythmic momentum does pick up a bit as across-the-bar syncopations in violin and viola are introduced before we enter into the recapitulation and the opening theme returns. Here's an excerpt from the second part of the development section going into the recapitulation. The first subject enters quietly as you heard, and initially everything proceeds in conventional fashion. The transition to the second subject, glutted with offbeat sforzandi, briefly fakes a couple of modulations, but in the end it arrives securely in the tonic key. But the second subject, that had originally occurred in the unexpected key of B-flat major, now comes back in the equally unexpected key of E-flat major which has the virtue of being a fifth lower than the original key, so at least the typical recapitulation key logic remains intact. Once again, the unexpected key is eventually explained away as Beethoven maneuvers the theme back to the key of G at the last minute. But, just as in the exposition, the effect has been made, and no last-minute sleight of hand can change it. We hear the theme coming back in a remote key, just as we initially heard it presented in a remote key. The last minute switch back to the normal key, D major in the exposition and G major in the recapitulation, allows Beethoven to satisfy, at least to some extent, the recapitulation's traditional need to balance the tonal instability of the development section with the tonal stability of the recapitulation and its insistence on the tonic chord while still allowing us to enjoy the element of surprise. That's it for today. For our next episode, we'll look at the piano sonatas of Opus 10.